Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up in this hour, our topic is domestic violence. We're going to be talking about a new novel, How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. The author is D. Brian Simmons. And we're going to invite your questions and comments, perhaps your experiences in this area, very important to address. Uh, first, some unfinished business from yesterday's program. You'll recall we talked about the uh, question in Moab, which is also facing other western towns. Uh, should uh, tap water, culinary water, be used for oil and gas development? We had a vigorous and, I thought, useful discussion on the topic. Thanks to everyone who participated. We had these comments on our Facebook page. Celia Alario, a Moab resident, one of our guests, says thanks to all who called in and to Hela Urshadi and Bill Love and the folks at UPR for making time for this issue. So great to be able to participate. Thanks, Celia. And Hela Urshadi responds on our Facebook page, You did great, Celia Alario. I enjoyed listening to everyone. I was also glad for the chance to discuss the bigger picture in regards to water and energy. So thanks to uh, Celia Alario and Hela Urshadi, also to Bill Love and to uh, John Weisheit from Living Rivers who uh, who joined us. We did have this uh, call. A uh, caller called in with a uh, question, which uh, I I got I lost this in the shuffle, so I apologize to our caller. Uh, the question was: Can wastewater be used for fracking? And we are trying to track down an answer for that, and uh, once we get that, we'll get that on the air and on our website. By the way, all of these comments on our website upr.org. And finally, this uh, somewhat lengthy but uh, useful comment from Jim Styles who uh, lives in the area and, of course, is uh, from the, the, the online magazine uh, Zephyr. Uh, this is what Jim Stiles says. I haven't lived in Moab for over a decade. In 2005, I moved the Zephyr south to San Juan County. Nowadays, my wife and I even hide out part of the year on the Great Plains. I rarely dabble in Moab politics these days. It's a very different town. But since you asked, and we did ask him for a statement, regarding water, uh, Moab water and oil and gas issues, I suppose I have a different take on it. Moab City officials released data last year revealing that commercial construction in the community exceeded $16 million in just the first quarter of 2013. The reality is a tourist economy desperately needs an ever-growing supply of affordable oil to meet expected increases in tourist visitation. But they fear oil exploitation in their area will adversely affect tourism. Most Moabites fail to see the contradiction. For a decade, I've tried to honor and respect these words by the great author and conservationist Wendell Berry. This is what is wrong with the conservation movement. It has a clear conscience to the conservation movement. It is only production that causes environmental degradation. The consumption that supports the production is rarely acknowledged to be a fault. The ideal of run-of-the-mill conservationist is to impose restraints upon production without limiting consumption or burdening the consciences of consumers. Last year, I quoted from a United Nations report on the impact of tourism. Now back to Jim Stiles' words on climate change. In 2005, tourism's contribution to the global warming was estimated to contribute between 5 and 14 percent to the overall warming caused by human emissions of greenhouse. More specifically, the report noted, by 2035, tourism's contribution to climate change may have grown considerably. Yet most new Moabites argue that tourism is a clean alternative economy, a win-win for everyone. It's from a very long Zephyr story last year called Moab and Fracking and Climate Change and Elevated Bikeways, and he gives the link. You can find that on our website, upr.org. He continues, I am by no means supportive of reckless oil and gas development and extraction, but I just couldn't live with the hypocrisy anymore. 
When I see Moab address its own contradictions, I'll take their objections seriously. I hope someday the mainstream media will give the production versus consumption issue some real airtime, but so far it's been painfully silent. Good luck, Jim Stiles. P.S. He says, another link, is there anywhere too good to frack? And that's in the, the Canyon Country Zephyr, and that link as well is on our website, upr.org. So thanks to everyone who participated in the program yesterday. The conversation continues on our website, upr.org, and on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Now to today's subject. After two years of marriage, a gnawing feeling leads Belinda Pecan Morrow to suspect that getting married before the conclusion of her senior year in high school and after her father's sudden death was a huge mistake. She packs up her few belongings and her baby girl and attempts to leave her husband, Ricky Morrow, an up-and-coming boxing sensation from Mississippi. When he catches her, she learns that Ricky has no qualms about using his fists outside the ring. D. Brian Simmons says her novel, How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch, was inspired by the women in her family who suffered and survived domestic violence for three generations. D. Brian Simmons was born and raised in Chicago. She's earned a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology, a Master's in Elementary Education. She describes herself as a mother, entrepreneur, and advocate for female empowerment. D. Brian Simmons joins me for the hour today. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, so this, uh, you're passionate about this this subject, domestic violence, female empowerment, and, and this, unfortunately, I'm, I'm reading, comes from experiences in your own family, going back three generations? Yes. My, my great-grandmother is actually the, um, the inspiration for Pecan and How to Knock a Brave Bird from a Perch. She married uh, an abusive man, and they were married for like 30 years. They had nine kids, and she never left him. And and that's uh, that's somewhat typical, isn't it? That you you have women who who stay. Yes, they do. I didn't want to write about that, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> My definitely. character does a little. She goes a little different way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have, do you think things have changed? Do you think the word is getting out that uh, women are more likely to to leave? Well, I don't know if they're more likely. I think it's probably the same. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think I, I've actually um, conversed with one lady who um, she responded to one of the articles I wrote about domestic violence, and she was saying that um, she really didn't think that we should encourage women to leave because that might put them in danger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my my approach to that is they should absolutely leave, but they should do it in a smart way. You know, I mean, don't just up and decide to leave. You know, you have to make preparations. You have to take certain steps to protect yourself. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that. I, I was reading a very interesting article that uh, that, that you wrote. You're, you're you're giving several steps to to women who are considering leaving. I wonder if we could could go over that because uh, you you say that it, in the end, you know, if it, if it gets bad enough, there are really only two things that are likely to happen: that they, you know, kill the perpetrator or, or leave. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's really the only way, those are only two ways to get out of, you know, that kind of a relationship. Um, so the steps to leave, there, I, I think I give like six. Yeah, yeah. And, and the first of those I, I found interesting, to find someone to confide, confide in. You, you'll need some support. Right, that's right. Find someone that you trust and... You know, this can be a difficult step, 
actually, because so many people, it might be hard to, you know, uh, for us to understand, but there's so many people who will encourage people to stay in relationships where they're being abused. Um, so you have to pick the right person to confide in. Um, and then you want to know your abuser. You want to know his schedule. You want to know, you know, how long it takes him to get to work and how long it takes him to get home so that you can be aware of where you might see him or where he might see you. And if he checks up on you, you need to, you know, be prepared for that. And then you want to get your, you know, your important documents together. If you have kids, you want their birth certificates, um, social security cards. You also want to get bank records and any legal documents or government documents. If you are getting assistance from the government, you want to have all that paperwork with you. And then, if you, especially if you have kids, you want to speak to a lawyer before you leave because there might be some custody issues. Um, and and then finally, make sure that you, you know where you're going. And you can relocate to a shelter or if you just can relocate to a, a new place, that's great. Um, and then you want to make sure that you you keep all your information secret. You know, this, it's surprising how much people can pick up just from social media. You know, they find out that you, you like this restaurant on such and such street, and they know that you're in that area. So you have to be careful about how much information you put out there about yourself. Hmm. And the, the perpetrator uh, often will try to find the, the, the victim. Yeah, that's actually the most dangerous time period. It's after they leave. You know, because he wants to get them back. And so he will try and convince them, he'll do whatever he can, you know, to even threaten violence. I don't I don't know that many people understand that. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the part after you leave, I think it's like six weeks. The six weeks after you leave is actually the time that you should be most vigilant. You should be most careful. And there can be ongoing problems, even if, even if you get out and, uh, and are successful getting out. In fact, this happens in the novel, right? Uh, become uh, finally gets out, but but discovers that uh, there are still problems. Yes, yeah, she still has to deal with, um, you know, a lot of questions about money and parenting, and then the legal aspect of going through a divorce. So there's definitely. I wanted to make sure she had plenty of problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Good, good for the dramatic structure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was, I was touched. You uh, in this article I was reading, and you give the uh, these steps uh, to, uh, to to make sure you can get out safely. Then you go on to give suggestions to to what people can do, and you say, find a girl, any girl, doesn't have to be related to you. Let her know that she matters. You suggest that people who've gotten out of domestic violence situations, or I guess any of us, that this is something we can do to maybe help the next generation to be better. Yes, that's actually that's kind of my inspiration for a lot of things that I do, because um, I have a daughter, and I always think about how I can protect her and how I can empower her to be the kind of person that can protect herself. Hmm. I, I was reading elsewhere, You were, I think this is on your blog, by the way, on your on your website, a lot of interesting things there, and uh, you're writing about the uh, sort of the myth of the princess 
And uh, boy, princess is big. If you if you know young girls, <laughs> they all want to be princesses. I don't know about your daughter, but uh, yeah, uh, you're saying they're they're uh, you know I guess there are probably some good things there, but uh, there are um, some lessons that maybe aren't so good there too as well. Yes, you know what's so funny? I just read an article. Um, I think it was in Huffington Post about the the real story behind a lot of those fairy tales and like Sleeping Beauty fell asleep and then the priest the priest the prince <laughs> he showed up and it, he raped her and then she had kids and that's what woke her up that's that was the original version of the story and it's like it's changed to a you know a nicer version but <laughs> the idea is still the same you know it doesn't like we have all these you know these expectations of the guy's going to come and he's going to uh, make your life better or he's going to complete your life or and then you know you you put all these expectations on somebody and how do they stack up and how do you you know untangle yourself when they don't stack up and and you know like how do you how do you know what's good and what's worthy of uh Sticking around when you have this unrealistic expectation, hmm. and uh, the Snow White gets gets tricked into into eating the apple, right? Right, there, and right. that has some chilling parallels to uh, you know, say, date rape and, and other issues. That's true, and and I think um, the, the way that story ended was the prince just came and got her. <laughs> yeah. He just showed up and he saw her in a glass coffin. And he decided he's going to take her away, and she'd never met him before, and. <laughs> and the the dwarfs didn't want to let her go, but they decided to. Yeah. It's, it's weird. So, the things that we think are normal or romantic. And, and yet these, these myths are very powerful. Um, how, how do you, you know, every little, or a lot of little girls want to be the princess. How do you, how do you get the right message to them? Well, um, what I, my daughter's only 18 months. So I have a little bit of time before I have to deal with that. But I, the way I think that I would deal with it is, you know, like when Halloween comes around, I want to encourage her to do, to be something other than a princess or a Barbie. And I, I want to talk to her about, you know, women who have done wonderful things. You know, like when I was, um, when I was six, my mother dressed me up as Carol Mosley Braun <laughs> for, for the, uh, Halloween. The former and, former senator from Illinois. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember at the same time, you know, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a model, and I also wanted to be a police officer. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up dressed up as a senator, but that's how that happened. Wait, now, what was your was your mother trying to send you a message there? Is that what she was trying to do? I think she was. Mm-hmm. My mom was. Yeah. She's. She's very much like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I. And she was always very good about, um, you know, in um, encouraging me and saying, you know, you have these talents. And I was never, I was never just a pretty girl. I was never just like, for example, um, my father. He uh, he was a photographer, and he would take like you know videos and pictures and. I was kind of his model for a while, and <laughs> a friend of mine and and I we were uh, testing out some equipment, and he looks at us and he goes, "Okay, what do you want to be when you grow up?" 
And my friend is like, I want to be a mother. <laughs> and he's like, okay, you want to get married first, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, why not? And then he turns to me and he's like, you better not say you want to be a mother. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so just encouraging girls to, to think outside the box. It's fine if you want to be a mother. I wanted to be a mother. But you don't have to just do that. You don't have to choose. You can be anything and everything. Uh, it's interesting in this in the same article um, you talk about. We've been talking about uh, how to give good messages to to girls, encourage her to love herself just as she is. Um, you also talk about boys. You say find a boy, any boy, doesn't have to be related to you. Let him know it's okay to feel every emotion on the spectrum and show him how to express them in a healthy way. Uh, do, do you think we socialize men that that becomes a problem in some men to, that leads to domestic violence? Absolutely, you know. There's such a, I, I don't even know if we think about it, it just happens. You know, when you are interacting with little boys, you don't, you don't want them to be weak. You want them, you tell them, don't cry. You know, and when they are, you know, even like playing sports and things, it's like, don't act like a girl. You know, you hit like a girl. You know, I mean, there's all these connotations, these negative connotations that we, we send to boys about girls and about being emotional and so that they learn that the only um, emotion that is okay for them to express is anger they don't learn how to you know be disappointed and to be sad and to be okay in those relations to be okay in those emotions and then learn how to work through them which is really how we should and, and the girls same thing actually you know we just we're not supposed to be angry. You know, we are conditioned not to be angry, to be pleasant and to be accepting of whatever is going on, you know. And so we have to make a conscious decision to encourage our girls to, you know, find their voice and to express themselves, just like we have to do the same with boys. Hmm. You uh, Another thing, a piece of advice you give uh, for for girls, teaching them, you say teach her to set boundaries and resolve conflicts. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that, you know, everybody should have that skill set, you know, whether it's, it can be applied in your job, in your family, you know, you're having a family gathering, everybody's got different ideas, you know, you want to be respectful of other people and you want to get things done. So, I mean, we all need to to learn how to resolve conflict, and this is especially important in the the context of domestic violence, Mm. because Really, the the violent situation is an attempt to resolve conflict, but either one or both of the people involved, they don't know how to do that. And and for the boys, this was interesting to me. You say help him understand that his pride is no more important than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. You think that's a that, that's something we socialize boys in, and that, that becomes a problem. You know, um, yes, a lot of uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll find that, especially when since boys are are conditioned to be able to be angry, you know, it's because they are upset with somebody. Somebody did something. Somebody won't let them do something. So it, that's all about them. You know, we don't condition the boys to be thoughtful and to 
take care of other people and to notice when someone else is upset and try to make them feel better. We're talking with uh, D. Brian Simmons on the program today. Uh, her uh, new novel is How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. She says it was inspired by the women in her family who suffered and survived domestic violence for three generations. And I've read elsewhere that D. Brian Simmons uh, has friends who've suffered this as well. And so we're talking about that subject, talk about the novel as well as we go along. We'd love to hear your experience, your advice, your comments and questions. You can get those to us uh, by telephone, of course, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, post on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, uh, and uh, you can... Uh, uh, join us on Twitter. Just use the hashtag AccessUtah. More following the break. Did you know that librarians make a difference in the lives of students? A recent study showed that fewer librarians in schools translated to lower performance or a slower rise in scores on standardized tests, particularly in fourth grade reading scores. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including veggie burgers with a lemon-garlic aioli or lentil salad with tarragon vinaigrette. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our subject is domestic violence today. The novel is How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. The author is D. Brian Simmons. In the novel, after two years of marriage, a gnawing feeling leads Belinda Pecan Morrow to suspect that getting married before the conclusion of her senior year in high school and after her father's sudden death was a huge mistake. She packs up her few belongings and her baby girl attempts to leave her husband who's Ricky Morrow, an upcoming boxing sensation from Mississippi. But when he catches her, she learns that Ricky has no qualms about using his fists outside the ring. Dee Brian Simmons says that her novel was inspired by the women in her family who have suffered and survived domestic violence for three generations. Uh, you can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or on Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah. I looked up some statistics on the Utah Department of Health website just to bring this home for Utah. Uh, here are some sobering statistics. In 2011, there were 19 domestic violence-related homicides in Utah. That's approximately 32% of all homicides in Utah that year. In 2011, more than 3,400 men, women, and children entered shelters in fiscal year 2010 to escape domestic violence. In 2008, 14.2% of Utah women ages 18 and older reported that an intimate partner had ever hit, slapped, pushed, kicked, or hurt them in any way. So 14%. Uh, so it is going on in Utah, and of course, uh, everywhere, a subject that D. Brian Simmons is addressing and uh, trying, to, trying to help out with uh, here. Uh, Debron Simmons uh, has a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology, a Master's in Elementary Education. She's a mother, entrepreneur, and describes herself as an advocate for female empowerment. Uh, Debron Simmons, uh, I was quite moved by the uh, the book trailer. These days, uh, if you have a book, you, you do a trailer, just like a movie trailer. 
And uh, this one uh, is a nice-looking woman who is, you see her first at the uh, an old-style uh, typewriter, and, and then she ages over time, and you get some of the themes from the book. But uh, one of the things she says is that she is writing this for her for her daughters. Mm-hmm. Yes. She's, um, she's trying to pass I on was... this knowledge to her daughters. I'm sorry. Uh, she, uh, excuse me. She's trying to pass on this knowledge to her daughters. That's that's an important part for her. Yeah, you know, I think we all as parents, we, we want to leave our kids with something. And um, Pecan, you know, she wants she wants her girls to to love her, but she doesn't want them to be like her. You know, she, like a lot of battered women, blame herself for the the situation. And then she also blames Ricky. But <laughs> she she still gives some of the responsibility to herself and... And she doesn't want her daughters to be like her, and she wants she wants them to learn from her experiences, and she wants them to have better relationships than she did. Hmm. Uh, you uh, you chose to write this in the first person. You're, this is from Pecan's perspective. Why, why is that? Um. Well, I started off writing about. I started my very first draft was in the third person, and it didn't really. The first person lets you connect better with the with the character, mm. and I didn't really want to tell um, the story from anybody else's point of view. Uh, tell uh, tell us a bit about Pecan. She is uh, she, she's growing up in Mississippi, born in '52, so that she was becoming of age in the in the, in the '60s. Uh, called Pecan because of her father, who she adores. Yes. Um, the the prologue is really the only place where her father um, exists in the book, and he is, you know, this this kind of like a evergreen for her, and he just he he's the one who loves her, protects her, and teaches her things, and um, she doesn't have a relationship with her mother. She doesn't have. You know, she and because he's such a, a strong figure, she kind of grows into being, you know, just a little bit timid, and she's used to him kind of, you know, making the way for her. So when she grows up, she gets a little older. She's a little afraid to step out on her own. Mm. And her, her mother's not around. That's right. Her mother. Yeah. And and in fact, she'll she'll get letters from her mother, but she as she grows up, she uh, notices that the the handwriting is suspiciously close to her father's. <laughs> yes, he he's so thoughtful. You know, he's like the he he's the example that Ricky should have been. You know, he's the example that you know you don't have to be abusive to be a strong man. You know, he's strong and he's also very caring. Mm. Then uh, Ricky gets off the bus. She's uh, she's you know swept off her feet around the same time her her father dies, right? So she makes the decision to. She's pretty young to to marry Ricky. Yes, she you know she's she's in mourning, so she doesn't really have all her faculties, and she's just she's just afraid. She's afraid of this big wide world that you know she's never been outside of her town. She uh, doesn't have a you know, uh, education background. She she uh, 
she hasn't finished high school yet. Mm. Uh, and of course, Ricky would, I guess, would be attractive. Strong man. He's a he's an up and coming boxer. A very self confident. Mm-hmm. He is. He is very confident, and and he. She. I think she probably sees some of her father's characteristics in him. You know, he's a big guy. He's you know physical, and he's so sure about the fact that he wants her. So. So tell us about the, uh, the the domestic violence here, did, um, and I, I suppose this 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 happens like in a lot of relationships. You know, the first time you you think, well, it seems maybe only only one time, that it continues. But there's there's certainly an emotional element here, and and and, uh, and a wearing down, and a, I guess a withering of of self worth. I'm not sure all what happens here. Um. Well, I think yeah, the first time that it happened, she's she's shocked. She's she's shocked, even though somewhere inside of her, she suspected he might have been capable of that, but she never thought. You know, she grew up never thinking that this would ever possibly happen to her, and um, and he just kind of he. There's a moment after the first time that he attacks her that. She could have gotten up and left. She could have made up her mind, maybe not at that very moment, but you know, she could have made a plan to leave. But he convinces her that the world is a scary place, which is you know, reaffirming her fear to begin with. That's what led her to marry him, because she didn't want to face the world alone. So now she has a child, and you know, that's scary to, to, to have to go out into the world with a child when you're scared to go out just yourself. So he he really just, you know, he makes it a practical decision for her. She doesn't stay because she's in love with him. You know, she doesn't think, oh, he's going to change. She's just scared to uh, to go out on her own. Hmm. I suppose that would be representative of, of a lot of women. The, the unknown is perhaps scarier than the bad situation at home. I would imagine so. I don't. I don't know if that's a lot of women. I think a lot of the stories that we hear about domestic violence are because, you know, the woman stays because she's either afraid of her, afraid for her life, or she thinks that he loves her and they're going to work through it. There's something interesting. Uh, this is one of the articles I believe that that you wrote or, or about your book anyway. Uh, battered women don't need to forgive or fix their abusers, but they do need to accept they cannot change the past. Yes, yes. I've had quite a few friends, um, unfortunately, to to have to deal with some sort of violence from a loved one or someone they're dating. And their response, you know, their responses vary. But in general, they want to forgive the person. They want to believe that this person is a good person because that's, that was their first impression. They want their first impression to be correct. So they convince themselves that they should work on forgiving him or that if they were just a little bit better, if they just did this more or did that less, then then they would be right and he would be a good guy. Hmm. 
And you also say this, I found this interesting as well, uh, that uh, over time, and at least in some of these situations, the perpetrator's excuses become the victim's excuses. That she'll take those up. Yes. I, don't, I won't say that she will believe them wholeheartedly, but she will repeat them. I've, I've noticed that too. Hmm. And that's what she's trying to put a, a, a good face on the situation, I guess? Or? You know, I, I think it's, she's just trying to reaffirm this reality between the two of them, you know, that what goes on between them is normal and it's right, and so she's going to repeat what he said to her so that she can make herself believe it and so she can feel justified in loving him and being with him. So the first step, you say, is, is admitting there's a problem. She, she's got to say, okay, there's a problem, and, and then you go from there. Right, absolutely, because, I mean, she's not going to leave and he's not going to change if there is no problem in their minds. You also, uh, so this, is, this is interesting to me, you say that women are responsible for their sisters, daughters, friends. You, you need to, women need to speak up for each other. That's right, absolutely. I... Mm, that is that's based off of my life too. Um, I I have a really good friend that I love to death, and I witnessed her going through something, being attacked. Um, we were kids. Come to think of it, we were just like adolescents. I don't know, thirteen, twelve, and I struggled to find my voice. Like in the moment, I was so shocked and so scared and angry, it took me what felt like forever to say something, to scream and, you know, get people's, uh, where are the adults, <laughs> you know, get the adults' attention, look what he's doing to her, you know. Um, we have to stand up for each other. And I don't, I don't know how she made sense of that incident. Um, I know her mom did find out about it, but I don't know if they talked about it. And we have to we have to have that dialogue with each other, and we have to, you know, I understand that you know some people can't. It's easier to talk about something that did not happen to you. Mm. I guess sometimes, as society or as a community, we all sort of are complicit in buying into that that narrative that uh, you know this this is a good marriage. It's a you know that to stay together. There's not really a problem. And, um, you know, people will say, well, if there are kids involved, you know, kids need two parents, so therefore you should stay. Or, you know, um, religion says divorce is bad, so you should stay. There are all kinds of uh, reasons that people give to make people want to stay. Uh, what are what are some of the signs if you're you know if you're outside that relationship? Um, what are some of the signs to look for then? Well, if somebody is isolated, you know, um, where they they can't do things that they want to do, like you, you know you you want to go to a movie and she's like, um, I don't have to check with so and so, or you know. Um, um, finances are also a, a good indication. You know, if if uh, a, a woman doesn't know anything about her finances and she has to depend entirely on somebody else, you know, that's a, a, a way that abusers keep control of uh, 
girlfriend or their their wife. We're talking with Dee Bryant Simmons. Uh, she's author of a novel, How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. Uh, it's the first in a planned uh, series of books uh, from in what she's calling the Morrow Girls series, and this is uh, Belinda Pecan Morrow. It's uh, Mississippi, 1960s, and then it goes on from there. Um, she meets and marries an up-and-coming boxing sensation, Ricky Morrow, but then uh, then it turns violent, domestic violence. That's our subject for the hour, and uh, the the book is How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. Uh, D. Bryant Simmons with us uh, for another uh, about uh, 10 minutes or so. You can reach us in the program. Love to get your experience, your questions, your comments, your perspective at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us uh, by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Utah Public Radio. You can comment there and you can tweet us. Uh, use the hashtag Access Utah. More with Dee Brian Simmons, How to Knock a Brave Word from Her Perch, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business 30th Annual Information Technology Conference, Tuesday, February 25th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Introducing Cyber Law Specialist David Thaw, Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. Details at partners.usu.edu. This week on This American Life, twin 13-year-old girls who do not get along. I got to see her when I wake up, when I go to sleep, and I don't like her. By chance, their middle school is run by twin brothers, Ronnie and Reggie Richardson. They're like, whoa, no, that's totally against twin code. Let's talk about this. Seeing yourself and others and where that leads this week. Every Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. After two years of marriage, a gnawing feeling leads Belinda Pecan Morrow to suspect that getting married before the conclusion of her senior year in high school and after her father's sudden death was a huge mistake. She packs up her few belongings and her baby girl and attempts to leave her husband, Ricky Morrow, an upcoming boxing sensation from Mississippi. When he catches her, however, she learns that Ricky has no qualms about using his fists outside the ring. D. Brian Simmons, our guest for the hour, says her novel, How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch, out now was inspired by the women in her family who have suffered and survived domestic violence for three generations. And uh, we are talking about this important subject uh, through the uh, through the prism of this novel with D. Bryant Simmons uh, on Access Utah Today. You're welcome to join the conversation by phone to 1-800-826-1495. You can get an email to us at upraxis at gmail.com. We're on uh, Facebook, Utah Public Radio. And you can uh, reach us by Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah. We have this question that's come in by email. This is from Gary in Logan. Uh, two questions. What are the most effective ways to provide support to a friend in an abusive relationship? Well, you, you don't want to judge them, and you don't want to tell them what to do. You want to just you kind of have to be prepared so that you don't let allow all of your emotions to get in the way of what you're trying to do, which is support them. You want to you want to tell them, you know, you love them, and you're here for them, you know, no matter what, in whatever way you can be. And I also suggest that you 
you know, you have some information that you can give them. You know, if, if they want or if they need, or you can just suggest that they can um, get help. You know, talk to a therapist who who specializes in domestic violence, or um, they talk to a lawyer or whatever their main concern is. Um, and if they, but if, of course, if they completely deny that it's going on, then you can't you can't get to that step. But you know, you can just say, um, you know, I know that you can go to this church, you know. If, and talk to somebody if you're having problems in your relationship. You know, maybe you want to phrase it as problems in your relationship instead of saying, you know, I, I know that you're dealing with domestic violence. But just, you know, have something specific to tell them to, that would help them, and to help them to to make peace with what's going on and help them to get out of it. Uh, Here's the second question from Gary and Logan. What actions should and should not be taken by an outside party? Who cares? Um, Well, uh, like I said, you should not. You don't want to judge them. You don't want to threaten them. (laughs) Um, You don't want to make them feel any worse than they already do. So you, you just, it's more about not saying certain things, I guess. You know, you, you don't want to say, or you don't want to give the impression that you think that they are stupid or weak or, you know, um, I don't I don't know, just negative stuff. You just want to tell them, you know, I believe in you and I think that you are capable. You know, you you can take care of yourself. You you are so good to other people. You know, you want to. Be as good to yourself and surround yourself with people who are as good to you. You kind of, you just, you want to spin it in a way that their life can be better and they can um, be themselves and be free to be themselves and to be happy. I hope that helps. Uh, Definitely. Uh, So thanks for that, uh, Gary. we are talking with D. Bryant Simmons on the program today. Uh, her book is How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch, talking about domestic violence. And we have another uh, six minutes or so left in the program. You can reach us at 1-800-826-1495. You can get an email to us at upraxis at gmail.com. And reach us on Facebook, Utah Public Radio, and Twitter. Use the hashtag uh, Axis uh, Utah. Uh, Jennifer from Vernal joins us next. Glad you called, Jennifer. Go ahead with your question or comment. I didn't catch at the very beginning where your guest is 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 uh, speaking. Uh, where where is she talking from? Uh, like geographically? I'm in Chicago. I, I suspected. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Because why care mostly Brown? I mean, most people out here in Utah don't have a faintest idea who this woman is. But I actually worked on Tony Preckwinkle's first aldermanic campaign when I lived in um, Hyde Park. But anyway, I just wanted to say that um, so much of this is about power and control. And if we take away some of the tools that controllers use, the big one, uh, the big one is the money. And I've taught all my three daughters, say, I've said, make sure you have a way to make a living in case.
case, you know, Mr. Wonderful doesn't turn out to be that wonderful because that's one of the things they use to try to keep you in your place. And even back, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the LDS Church, but there's been a lot of domestic abuse in the church. And it was, um, I was, I was in Chicago at University of Chicago when um, the daughter-in-law of President Kimball, uh, Catherine Kimball, who's passed away, her husband taught tax and, and uh, insurance law at the U of C. She said to me that when President Kimball said something, it was in the Ensign magazine the next month. But when Camilla said something, it took 20 years. But what Camilla said was, all you women need to have a a marketable skill because she was observing that this is how these guys got away with this. The women didn't have any money, and the men had control of the money. So I would suggest that there should be a huge campaign to teach all young girls, you got to have your own money. That's the biggest tool these guys use, besides just sheer intimidation. So anyway, I'm glad you're on there. I'm glad you wrote the book, and I hope the rest of the books go well, too. So I'm glad you're speaking to us out in the middle of nowhere here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, thanks, right? Jennifer. Thanks. Appreciate okay. the call. Uh, that that is an important point, isn't it? Uh, D. Bryant Simmons. It's 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 power and control, and if you can if you can mitigate that, uh, that that'll help. Absolutely, absolutely. She's completely right about the money. Uh, that's actually that actually happens to Picard too. Yeah, he she's a housewife for a good bit of the book, and so he he makes all the money. He makes all the decisions and. Afraid, and the control the control part of it. We I mean, you, you hear about this, um, you know, that uh, controlling the movements of the spouse, uh, uh, all of that sort of thing. That, that's about control. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you how do you break out of that? That, that I guess that's part of your six steps is to, to to know what he's likely to do so that you can have your escape plan. Exactly, and and you know, no woman leaves until she's ready. So. It's hard for us as friends and family to watch, you know, watch them get ready, you know, get ready to leave, to get ready to get to that point where they can leave. But there's really no rushing it, (laughs) you know. I mean, we can say until we're blue in the face, we we want you to leave, you know. And for some women, that will just make them want to stay more. Hmm. So, you know, you just have to you have to accept that she will leave when she's ready and let her know that you're there. You're there for her. We just have a, a, about a minute and a half left. I wanted to ask you about the dedications, very poignant dedication. Uh, here's what it says to the book. For all women who doubt their abilities, especially my mother, I love you. Yes, my mom. My mom is, you know, a great source of inspiration. She... As much as she's done to encourage me and empower me, she still doesn't think that she's capable of doing all the things that she loves and all the things that she's wanted to do her whole life. So I, I love her so much. Well, the book is uh, How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch. There are other books coming, I believe, that's uh, centering on, on this family. Yes, yes, the next two books I'm working on now, they're about her daughter's.
Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And you can find all about it at the website. And there's a lot of information. Uh, some of the things we've been talking about here I found at the at the D. Bryant uh, Simmons website, which is dbryantsimmons.com. Uh, D. Bryant Simmons, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. And again, the book is How to Knock a Brave Bird from Her Perch, the website dbryantsimmons.com. And uh, that's a good place to uh, branch out and learn more. Also got some statistics from health.utah.gov. And by the way, Utah Domestic Violence uh, link line or hotline is 1-800-897-LINK, L-I-N-K, 1-800-897-L-I-N-K. And the Rape and Sexual Assault Crisis Line, 1-888-421-1100. You can find this at uh, health.utah.gov. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow with uh, Sherry Quinn for uh, Access Utah and Science Questions uh, for today. For producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Former state folklorist Hal Cannon visited the StoryCorps booth with his wife, Teresa Jordan. He recalls his experience with Utah's pioneer past. I'm a folklorist, and I was very active when the American Folklife Center got going. Back in those days, folklorists did everything to try to get the sort of words and stories of common people out One of my first things I wanted to do in my first job as state folklorist of Utah was to create an exhibit called the Utah Folk Art Exhibit. Part of the exhibit was contemporary things that people made. You know, prior to 1869 when the railroad came here, everything that came to Utah with the pioneers was either brought on a wagon or was made here. There were these museums that were dotted all over Utah and the Mormon West called relic halls. They were put together by the Daughters of Utah Pioneers, and the DUP would gather all these pioneer relics because they felt, too, when they started in the 40s or 50s, that it was important to preserve this material culture, as they called it. The only problem was is the Daughters of Utah Pioneers had a policy not to lend anything out. Everything was to stay in its place in the relic halls. That was sort of vexing because we wanted to borrow some of these things. We wanted to have this traveling exhibit that really showed people all over what beauty the pioneers created, these common, ordinary things. In St. George, I remember, they had this lovely little collection of tinware. I called the woman who ran the Daughters of Utah Pioneer Relic Hall here in St. George, and she said, well, you know, Kate Carter, who was the founder who ran the Daughters of Utah Pioneers with an iron hand, she made this policy years ago, we can't lend anything out. And I said, well, you know, I'll sign a form that says that everything is insured. I work for the Utah Arts Council. This is only going to be at places that are safe. You know, and Kate Carter's dead. Like, what can she say? <laughs> Finally, this woman called me back and she said, you know, I think... What you're doing is valuable, and I'm willing to break the rules, but you have to meet me late at night at the Daughters of Utah Pioneer Relic Hall. And so I showed up about 9 o'clock at night in this dark parking lot here in St. George. She didn't even turn the lights on in the Relic Hall, and she turned one light on, and we walked in, and she had a box with these tin objects. 
I carried this box out and put it in my car. Well, I drove to Hurricane, where I had a hotel, and I brought the box of tinware into my hotel room. So I, uh, I was tired, and I laid down on the bed, and all of a sudden, this cold wind blew up my body, and I could not move. I was frozen. And all of a sudden, I felt the spirit of Kate Carter saying, you have violated my rule. You borrowed these relics, and you shouldn't have done that. I could not even move. And I'm not a, exactly a woo-woo kind of guy, but I was like frozen to the bed, and I was just petrified. I felt like her coming to intrude on me, and that's who I thought it was. I, I just knew it was her spirit that was intruding from the other side into my existence. I thought that was beyond the rules. <laughs> so all of a sudden, that cold wind stopped. I was able to move, and I was able to go to bed and go to sleep. We used the tinware in the exhibit. I returned it. I never had any other encounter with the lady. I don't know. I'm not a very spiritual person, but that was definitely an incredible experience. There's a real physiological and folkloric uh, explanation of it as well. So I sort of rely on that to be practical and reasonable uh, at this point instead of saying it was her spirit. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today. You can always listen online at upr.org for past episodes. It is now 10 o'clock. The Zesty Garden up next.